welcome to the first of AIC NSW Conveyancing Podcasts. The podcast series brings you the latest in case law, legislative updates and conveyancing practice from a select group of experts in the field. In this episode, Gary Newton, specialist in property law at HWL Ebsworth, discusses recent case law developments with Margaret Collier. Today we are here with Gary Newton, partner at HWL Ebsworth and a property law specialist. Gary is well known to AIC New South Wales members and we'll talk today about recent case law discussions. Welcome Gary. Thank you Margaret. 2019 was an interesting year for conveyances in many respects, including a few decisions that came down through the courts. Now, normally we have to go to the case law website or one of the other publishers for court decisions. However, one decision even achieved some prominence in the media because someone actually got to walk away with someone else's house for free. Is this a common thing to happen or was this a one-off arising out of very particular set of circumstances? Well, this is a possessory title case and they are very rare, but even saying that I've actually had a major possessory title myself, probably worth considerably more money than what hit the newspaper in this house at Ashbury. Now, the one at Ashbury was interesting because the person that owned it had died many years before. And after World War II, if you were a tenant in a property and you didn't have a de-restriction notice, you were a protected tenant for life at a rent of about three shillings per week. And so this was a protected tenancy. And when the old lady died in about 1998, uh, the house lay empty and started to have all everything grown over. And this young man, uh, who Mr. Gertos, saw this opportunity, cleaned up the property, started paying the council rates, the water rates, put a tenant in there and started occupying in law the property. And I think what the case was about was how can someone steal someone else's property like this? But possession is nine-tenths of the law and adverse possession is what this law is all about. And so if you take over someone else's property and they don't kick you out and you let a statutory period go past of 12 years for private and 20 years for government property, then you get full ownership and title. Now, the relatives of the man who died back in the late 1940s said, we own this $1.5 million house. And of course, they said he never occupied it. Well, the judge said, yes, he did. What he did was change the locks. He put tenants in there. He occupied it by these acts. And therefore, the 12 years passed and he has full title. So that was a very clear cut case. My own case in Potts Point was when we were doing a conversion of an old hotel into a block of flats and I saw the strata plan. I'd been to the hotel, I'd seen it all and went right up to the cliff. But the strata plan ended at the edge of the hotel. And the surveyor said, oh, that's another block of land. That's like lot two. I said, but the fence goes all the way around it. And the fences, all the neighbours told us, had been there for 60 years. And we thought we owned all of that land. So I did a hysterical, what we call a historical search. <laughs> hysterical is sometimes what you call it at the land titles office. And they went back and said, this person owned it. We checked, they died without will, without probate. We claimed possessory title. I understand everyone at Land Titles Office said, Eureka, we haven't had one of these in a while, and it was given. 
And the property was probably worth about $4 million back in the 1990s. It was uh, virtually waterfront at Potts Point. And this defeats indefeasibility? Yes. The reason is that the register needs to reflect who owns the property. And if you let someone else own the property, or for that matter, own an easement or something else like that, after a statutory period, they get common law rights which defeat indefeasibility. Believe it or not, New South Wales has some of the weakest laws of the Australian Federation. Most other states allow you to pinch someone else's bit of land, like the Dunny Lane at the back of the Paddington Terrace or stuff like that. But in New South Wales, it has to be a whole block of land. In Victoria, it can be a bit of land. So if you put your, neighbor, your fence over someone else's backyard, have a garage there, use it for 12 years, it's yours. The idea is they're meant to say, get off my land. And if you don't, you simply go to a judge and a judge will give you uh, an order in seconds because he'll say, why did you take his backyard? Oh, but I bought it that way. Well, that's too bad. You can't go back 12 years. All you need to do is kick him off. A case in contrast, though, is the uh, owners of SP5225 versus the Registrar General. And that concerned people trying to pinch, again, a big block of land in my suburb where I live, Darling Point, down towards near the water. And again, it's worth a lot of money. And one of the people that claimed to own this was a lady that had been using it. She'd put all pot plants and garden stuff and everything like that. But the trouble with the way she'd been using it is that every time she had a problem like a tree overgrowing or something was wrong, she'd ring council, it's your land, come out and fix it. And there were all these emails. And she was quite at them and at them and at them and at them. And so what they said in this case, denying the claim for ownership by this lady and the strata plan that she represented, I think it was two lots, um, was that they didn't actually exclude the true owner, which might have been council, might have been the RMS, or might have been someone years ago. And because of this lack of ownership, lack of who knows who owned it, and also lack of denial of other people, that's what your, your core is to steal it, take it, completely deny someone else's possession. And the reason why I think this is strong in property law is that a lot of people don't understand this. And if you're acting for someone and they suddenly say, oh, look, the backyard is not on my title or whatever, then you should be talking about a possessory application if you can prove the 12 years and that is a full title. So these are all important things. Now, caveats is a topic that quite wisely most of our audience treats with a great deal of caution. Uh, most of the people listening will probably be aware of the Georges case last year where the practitioner simply accepted her client's word that the client had an interest in the property and uh, the conveyancer got herself into a bit of hot water. What's actually required of a practitioner before lodging a caveat? Well, a caveat is a very important step in protecting your client's interest, whether it's buying a property, taking a mortgage, taking an easement, any sort of property interest and the idea of putting a caveat on the title is to freeze the register to stop anyone dealing inconsistently with your interest that's coming up shortly. So once you put in the caveat that gives you some sort of priority from that point in time and unfortunately with the register and the new electronic workspace uh, platforms is that when we enter a subscription agreement to 
be able to change the register and whether it's to put on a transfer or put on a caveat, every subscriber becomes, as we say out of the Lord of the Rings, the guardians of the gate. And we have to protect whatever goes in and make sure that it is not fraudulent. It is not wrong. So we have these responsibilities to uh, identify our clients, to make sure they have the interest claimed and other things. And unfortunately, in that case of Jurgis, the uh, practitioner involved simply put on the caveat after being pressured by her client without realising that what she'd said, that there was an instrument, a caveat, was all wrong, completely wrong. And therefore, as the guardian of that gate, she just let the monster straight through and the virus would immediately get in and infect everything. So the idea from the Supreme Court judge was, show me reason why I don't sack you and let you not ever practice in this area. And she did show a lot of remorse and she learned all about caveats. But I can only say for everyone out there, you must understand you have this responsibility. Now you need to contrast this sort of caveatable interest uh, question as to whether you have a caveatable interest with a recent case called Mayron versus Deng. And in that case was an interesting one where an employee who was employed by a big property agency, a developer, to go and find properties in Westmead, left the employee, said, I resign, then immediately went and bought a heap of properties in Westmead. So one starts to look at whether the employer, who didn't actually enter contracts or do anything, had a caveatable interest to shove caveats on those titles of those properties. So you get into this area of what is a caveatable interest. I remember the Supreme Court judge in Jurgis saying, wow, you could write books like Mr. Newton's book on uh, myself <laughs> on what is a caveatable interest. And it's never clear when it gets down to it. And he said, you can make mistakes. You can say that someone's got a capable interest. I don't care. What I don't want you to do is say there was an instrument when there is not. And with this, they said there was a capable interest because of a constructive trust that this Mr. Deng really was still doing things from his employment when he bought these properties. And the Supreme Court judge said, yep, I will leave these caveats on, even though they're stuffing up a third party's title, even though, and you all have to come before me now and argue as to whether Mr. Deng purchased this property on behalf of the real purchaser, his former employer. And so that was an interesting case, only just handed down, and we'll be talking about stage two shortly when it gets handed down as to whether there is in fact an interest for that employer. And I would put money on there is. Right. So this is a caveatable interest, ladies and gentlemen. So don't feel scared about it. It's not as if you have to say, geez, I don't know if it's a caveatable interest or not. You can go, you can ring up Gary Newton or you can ring up some great barristers I can recommend you to who can tell you yes or no. But, and one of them just said the other day, maybe. So even they are annoying sometimes. But um, you need to think constructive trust and put your caveat round an equitable interest as a constructive beneficiary under constructive trust. Put that in, get it on the title, and all hell will break loose and just be ready for the big court case. So maybe these are sort of interesting. Now, if you want to contrast that to another case of First Avenue versus Aquamore Credit Equity, what happened there was a purchaser, uh, I think, misunderstood the obligations of the vendor in their contract. The vendor terminated it, purchaser refused to remove his caveat. 
He said, no, 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 no. You, you, know, you got the contract wrong. You terminated wrong. I'm entitled to this property. And so the judge said, normally I would extend this caveat and let you all come back and argue whether the termination was valid or not. But the judge said, no, it's pretty obvious to me that you got it wrong, Mr. Purchaser. You're saying the vendor had obligations that are not written in this contract. You also uh, had a termination notice where you could have settled under protest, maybe made a claim for compensation or right. brought litigation. And thirdly, I have to look at the balance of convenience between keeping this caveat to protect this interest you might have, which is quite doubtful, compared to the poor old vendor who's got the right to go on and sell the property to someone else before the market falls through the floor and gets his full price from someone else. So he actually ordered the caveats be removed in that case, and I think it was out of Blacktown, to be removed on a site worth $10 million. So ladies and gentlemen, understand that a caveatable interest won't always be something simple to prove. You need to show a good interest to get it to be extended and not to be removed. Now, there's been a lot of case law around deposits for the last 40 years, particularly around 5% deposits, and purchasers seeking relief against forfeiture if they are unable to complete the contract. How likely is a purchaser to get their deposit back if they can't complete a contract? Can a purchaser, in fact, put themselves in a worse position by trying to extract themselves from the problem? Well, what often happens with a contract is, as I mentioned in that last case, is you have a tough decision where a purchaser might be held to have been in breach. But maybe the vendor did something wrong as well, which led to that breach. And you could be arguing over the fact that you've got a pretty picture of this model of a pump block being built. You're going to views all over the harbour and come the day of completion, there's a brick wall right in front of all your windows and balcony. That's happened. That's happened in cases. And it happens in the Gold Coast and Sydney Harbour a lot. And so you've got to understand that sometimes what a judge will say is if you can show some uh, inequitable conduct on behalf of the vendor, in other words, the vendor does not have clean hands, as the old British judges would say, then there's every chance that he'll say, yes, the toughness of the contract means that the purchaser was terminated, but under Section 552A of the Conveyancing Act or in the inherent jurisdiction of equity, I order the deposit be returned to the buyer. So be it. So this is an interesting area of law, especially in the falling market, if that ever happens. I don't, I don't seem to seem to happen, but if it ever does happen, because in a rising market, purchaser terminates, vendor can sell it to someone else for more money, seems to be quite happy. In a big falling market, which you saw about 10 years ago, I saw a lot of these sort of cases, and a purchaser often got their deposit back. So, And in, for instance, the Futian Fortune case, where the purchaser said uh, I was... There were misrepresentations. I had to rush in when I didn't need to rush. They told me there were other buyers when obviously I've got emails from people to say the agent lied, all these sort of things. And the fact that the vendor, after terminating, was able to sell it to someone else for $5 million more, maybe I should get my deposit back. And the judge said no. The judge said, really, you need to show something more than just a little bit of uh, huff and puff, which you get in any matter, a little bit more than a rising market. You need to show that the vendor has led you to making this mistake, 
or the Vendors Act was also bad and the toughness of the contract should be mitigated by giving you back the deposit. There was also a case of Copper versus King where the purchaser said and proved lots and lots of puffery and probably misrepresentations by the agent but the purchaser in that case didn't even go to look at the property. She relied on the usual thing where they fire off 50,000 emails at the poor old agent. You know, can I, what, I understand there's uh, upstairs and downstairs, two separate flats. Is that legal? And the agent, of course, said, oh, it probably is legal, but you have to rely on your own inquiries. Well, it wasn't legal. It was just two flats, which you often find in houses. And in fact, there had been a building certificate issued which said it excluded the downstairs area, which sort of indicated, one would have thought, the council was not happy with the downstairs area. So there was a lot of this sort of argy-bargy about whether the purchaser should be allowed to get back her deposit and walk away from the sale. And now, this is also an interesting case because she only paid a 5% deposit so the vendor was after the 10% enforcing the clause. And Emmett Jay, Supreme Court judge, um, did something which probably uh, equity judges may not agree and Justice Dark may not agree, said that the contract was quite clear. She breached the contract. She raised things which were improper. She tried to bring in clauses that were not there. And this arguments about whether the agent said stuff was legal or not, or rental returns and stuff, are all due diligence things that you should have done. So in the end, he said, no, you're not getting your deposit back to the purchaser, and I'm ordering a full 10% as payable. And that's a difficult decision because people keep asking me, what's the point of these clauses that say I pay 5% on exchange and 5% on settlement if judges say they're not enforceable? Sometimes they are enforceable, but I think you need to show a little bit more, like, um, for instance, maybe uh, the purchaser might have improved the property, which is what happened in the Chambers versus Bornis case. Now, in that case, the purchaser was let into possession for a year, was uh, entitled to do a lot of works to the property, turned it for a bit of a dump into a great new property. And therefore, when the purchaser ran out of money, couldn't settle, the vendor sought to get the full deposit and the purchaser sought the deposit back. And the judge came up with an interesting compromise, which the Supreme Court judges and the equity judges can do, which said, I'm actually going to give the purchaser relief of the payment of the deposit, so you get your deposit back. But there were things that, the, say if she painted it pink and the vendor didn't like pink, that might cost $10,000 to repaint the property. So he said, deducted from the deposit was enough money to restore the property back to something which was appropriate for the vendor. So in the end, the order was you get the deposit back, but money is kept back to fix up what you did to the property. So that's an interesting where it's a sort of both compromises. So these are all very interesting decisions about deposits. I thought we'd also talk about strata issues today, because when you think about it, Asking a group of strangers, often from divergent backgrounds, to all live together in perfect harmony can be a bit of an ask. This must have an impact on developers when creating strata and community plans and deciding on bylaws and impose obligations on owners to ensure relative harmony. How binding are these restrictions? Is there any wriggle room at all or does a purchaser just have to be very careful before deciding to buy into a particular strata plan? Yes, a purchaser should do their due diligence, get a strata inspection report, check what bylaws are on the title. And one of the ones which 
often pops up with my buyers is the pet bylaw. And I've never understood why you have a bunch of big townhouses down on the ground totally banning pets and you have massive high-rises where you can have Alsatians or great big dogs and cats and birds and whatever you like. But that was the will of the developer and some developers are quite switched on. They've created it so they can do whatever you like and they get away with it. And of course some of these townhouses may get someone who becomes the new chairman who absolutely hates barking dogs or the smell of cat pee or things like that. So they changed the bylaws. And that's exactly what happened in our case of Baxter the dog. That was an interesting case about a year ago in the uh, tribunal, the NCAT tribunal, which has jurisdiction over strata disputes. And one of the areas of the Strata Schemes Management Act is to look at the harmony of living together. And if you believe something is a bylaw which is just inappropriate with your ownership or enjoyment of your property, which I would argue a pet bylaw certainly was, and Yardi's case certainly decided that it was, is something you can fight and go for it. And what happened there, of course, I think the original strata was brought in with a fairly normal, you can have bylaws if you like, oh, sorry, bylaws, you can have animals if you like, and then the chairman changed that, hadn't been registered, got registered, two years you've got to register it in so there were mitigating circumstances there where the purchaser went to the tribunal and said i've got a dog everyone knew when i was buying it i did my strata inspection nothing came up it should have came up and probably if it did even then the tribunal member said there's no reason why you shouldn't have the normal conditions which says you can have pets but maybe not a large dog maybe a small dog cats things like that because that reflects old people reflects the living in Sydney in the environment of strata and so orders were given that the animal be allowed to remain and Baxter the dog wasn't gotten rid of. So just look at that and that brings you into many types of bylaws. The next case I want to talk about is Bokeman versus Aaron and one of the um, problems I see in strata is that you buy a strata lot which might be an apartment might also be a car space, might be a storage shed. And then suddenly you read there's an easement or a covenant or a restriction on your apartment or on your car space or on your storage. In other words, it's not on the common property or the ownership of everything like with animals, but also impacts on your enjoyment. And in that case, it was a footway easement through your car space because she, this lady had a big car space and behind it was the meters to read the water and the gas and everything else. So the strata and all the owners had the right to walk through her car space to get to those meters and have a look at them. And you'd be surprised how common this is because often in older block of flats in Potts Point or whatever, and they try to stick six car spaces under the building. Well, yes, and there's gonna be the meters and everything all at the back of them and everywhere. And they'll have easements and rights of way and stuff like that. And with this, the owner, put in a, a security cage and a lock and she kept her records from her real estate agency in there and other things and she didn't want people walking in and out. And so when the tribunal um, looked at this footway easement said no, you bought it subject to that footway easement, people do need the right to go look at these meters and stuff like that, so does the strata. And so they said yes, the balance is that you can lock it up, you can keep these things, but you need to release keys to allow 
the strata and the other owners, and it was particularly, I think, a bit of a tension between the two owners there who didn't seem to get on. So many developers I act for, wherever they go, they suddenly have fights with their neighbours, but it keeps us lawyers busy. Um, these people didn't get on, and so that was the order. I don't think it was ever challenged again. Personally, I think the order was brilliant. You know, it didn't say remove your cage, remove everything and stop occupying the way you wanted to occupy it. And it didn't say that the others had no right to, to go in there. It actually balanced what the easement should have been in the first place. Her ownership of her storage unit and her car space to do what she likes, but to respect the easement to allow other people to walk through her thing to get there and back. If anyone then steals her stuff or whatever, there are criminal laws that deal with that problem. And if you have a little camera, you might be able to ring the police and do things. So I would argue that these uh, issues uh, regarding pets, regarding easements to walk over or whatever, are all there to help people live in strata or community titles. Great. Thanks very much for your time today, Gary. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you for listening to the AIC NSW's Conveyancing Podcast. Thanks to Gary Newton and HWL Ebsworth Solicitors. Your responses, ideas and suggestions can be sent to events at aicnsw.com.au. This podcast is a production of Really Sound Productions. I'm Julian Pulvermacher and I look forward to your company next time. Please note, this podcast is a guide only. Nothing in this podcast is intended to be legal advice and should not be taken as legal advice. Should you require any further information on any aspect of the podcast, you should refer to AICNSW or a licensed conveyancer.